Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the University of Sydney and the Charles Perkins Center. My name is Doug Nardison. I'm Deputy Vice Chancellor of Research here at the University of Sydney. It's my great pleasure to uh, welcome all of you here and, of course, to welcome uh, our special guests. First of all, uh, Mark Butler, uh, uh, Tony Vassolo, and uh, Lizette um, Collins. Before I begin, I just wanted to acknowledge that we meet on the land of the Gadigal people. This part uh, of the University of Sydney is based on the traditional land of the Gadigal people. We like to think of ourselves as, well, we are Australia's oldest university, but this has been a place of learning for more than 160 years, in fact, for close to 50 or 60,000 years. So before we begin tonight, I just want to acknowledge uh, the Gadigal people, acknowledge the traditional owners, both past and present, and also pay my respect to any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people uh, in the audience. So tonight is a terrific uh, uh, evening. Uh, we're delighted uh, to be here uh, at an event organized by uh, our Sydney Environment Institute. Uh, the Sydney Environment Institute is one of uh, the university's flagship multidisciplinary programs. They really have, I guess, two fundamental goals. One is to uh, study, uh, redesign, rethink the fundamental relationship between human communities and the natural environment, understood in the broadest sense. It brings together researchers from across the humanities and social sciences and natural sciences to do that. Uh, we have extraordinary strengths in those areas, so we're, we're very proud of the work they do. And they also have one, I think, one of the most extraordinary public programs uh, at the university. So this is yet another of their uh, wonderful events. And they bring together all kinds of different speakers and, and, and experts in the field. The other thing they're doing, of course, is, is, is studying more specifically how uh, human communities and how we can all adapt uh, to uh, the change, climate change, and the change in the environment around us. So it's a very important, broad agenda that they support, and we're delighted to support it. And I do want to acknowledge Ian McCallum, one of the directors of the SMI here tonight as well. But my main duty is really to introduce uh, our speakers, and especially our distinguished guest speaker, uh, Mark Butler, who is currently the Shadow Minister for the Environment, Climate Change, uh, and Water. Uh, Mark was elected to the Federal Parliament in 2007, uh, representing the Electorate uh, of Port Adelaide. And his career has been uh, quite uh, a, a diverse one. Parliamentary Secretary for Health, Minister of Mental Health and Aging, Minister of Social Inclusion, Minister of Assisting the Prime on Mental Health Reform, Minister for Housing and Homelessness, Minister for Climate Change, Environment, Heritage, uh, and Water. Before that, he worked extensively uh, in the different hospitality miscellaneous team. Uh, including 11 years as uh, State Secretary. And uh, he holds, uh, I'm delighted to say, an arts degree uh, and an honors law degree uh, from Adelaide University and a master's in international relations uh, from Deakin. I'm also delighted to have uh, our colleagues, uh, Tony Vassalo, who's uh, the holder of the Delta Electricity Chair in Sustainable Energy Development in our Faculty of Engineering uh, and Information Technology. Tony will be providing a response uh, to Mark uh, tonight, and, and also uh, one of our PhD students, Lizette Collins, who's a candidate in the Department of Government and International Relations, specializing in climate change um, adaptation policy. So the format is Mark will give a keynote address, Tony will respond, Lizette will respond, uh, we're making Mark work for his visit, then uh, Mark will uh, take a seat with Lizette, and Tony will convene uh, a broader session. So I hope we can all stay in the for that. So without further ado, I'd like to invite Mark Butler to give us. Well, 
thank you, Duncan. Thank you for that uh, kind introduction. And can I also acknowledge the traditional owners, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and pay my respects to their elders, both past and present. I particularly thank the SEI, SEI for. Um, sorry, one of my sister unions was the SEIU, so I was thinking about putting a U on the end. The SEI for inviting me to this event. Uh, and also for the last hour I've been engaged in a really um, inspirational discussion with a number of the postgrad researchers at the Institute. I had the um, privilege of looking after the NHMRC in one of my previous ministerial roles and that also exposed me to an extraordinary array of some of the smartest young Australians doing incredibly inspiring research work and I always left those discussions partly inspired and partly also thinking I am not worthy. Um, these are really clever people doing extraordinary work. So thank you for that and I hope you continue to do that extraordinary research and the SEI continues that um, cross-disciplinary uh, organisation really of, of research into some very important public policy areas. It would also be amiss of me uh, not to recognise that in the audience there are some members of the Labor Environment Action Network or LEAN uh, which in the Labor Party is one of a number of substantial um, policy advocacy groups. Rainbow Labor is the other that people are probably familiar with which has been driving a really exciting discussion I think within the Labor Party about <coughs> excuse me, our climate change and energy policies moving into the next election period which as you know is coming upon us pretty quickly. Uh, I want to thank you for the opportunity to talk about um, Labor's plans for Australia's transition to a clean energy future because this really is a very important time to be having this discussion. We're still, after all, um, basking somewhat in the warm afterglow of what was a very successful conference in Paris in November and December last year. The electricity industry itself, uh, I'm glad to say, is starting to have very serious discussions about the <coughs> vast array of challenges that it faces, including the challenge of decarbonisation. And as you know, of course, we're now, I think, about five or six days into what promises to be the longest election campaign in Australian history, a prospect which I'm sure um, brings unadulterated joy out in all of you. It certainly does for me. Um, but for the Labor Party, this is also a very timely discussion because over the last several weeks, I've been engaged in about 50 different consultation sessions, primarily around our position on post-2020 emissions reduction targets, for the Paris Agreement, but inevitably also involving a very deep discussion, not so much about targets, but more about pathways to get to the target of 2030, whether it's a 26-28% to 28% emissions reduction target that Tony Abbott and Malcolm Turnbull are proposing, or whether it is the Climate Change Authority's recommendations around 2030 targets, which has been the subject of our consultation. And while I'm obviously not in a position yet to uh, announce where we've landed on those consultations, we are uh, at, the, at the latter end, at the back end really of those considerations. I hope that I am able to give you some reflections or some indication of the sorts of things that people are talking to the latter party about. But before I go to domestic policy, I thought I uh, would be worthwhile to reflect a little bit on the Paris Conference because this is a very important frame for this policy. I think all observers agree that the foundations for a successful conference in Paris in November and December were set very well before people started gathering 
uh, in the French capital. The pressure on nations to announce well before time their proposed targets for the Paris Agreement or in the UN lingo their indicative nationally determined contributions or INDCs meant I think that there was a very clear indication well before time how the conference was going. Perhaps most importantly though I think the United States and China, their leadership together and separately indicated on a number of occasions in the 12 or 18 months before the Paris conference that they were working very, very hard to make sure that the conference was a success. And nowadays, cooperation between the two preeminent powers in the world really is very, very hard to resist, as I think a few nations found at the Paris conference itself. At the conference itself, when the national negotiators, almost inevitably, given the pressure of these negotiations over a fortnight, started to falter or go off track a bit, one of the remarkable things about the conference was the degree to which sub-national governments, state, provincial and city governments, really did step up and put pressure on those national negotiators to get back on track. Very much led, I might say, by jurisdictions like South Australia, California and many others. And unlike many previous COPs or conferences of the parties, uh, the business voice in Paris was largely one, I think, that was urging action rather than resisting action, which had been a significant trend at past conferences. So friends, we, we start the new year uh, with an agreement from all nations now, not just developed nations, but all nations, to take action to keep global warming in the new lingo well below two degrees above pre-industrial levels as well as a more qualified commitment around a 1.5 degree threshold. <clears throat> Very importantly, nations have also agreed to a five yearly ratchet mechanism which will place upward pressure on national commitments to the Paris Conference because the sum total of the targets that are incorporated in the Paris Agreement take us closer to three degrees of warming rather than well below two degrees, which after all was the commitment that was agreed. Given that not much time actually at the Paris Conference was spent on the individual targets themselves, the negotiations really were focused on the overall framework and the end commitment. Uh, it's important to note that that process, the ratchet mechanism, starts as early as 2018, so the year after next, which has very important ramifications for the debate that we're having here in Australia about what our targets should be. <coughs> of course, the, the fact that um, <coughs> we find ourselves globally in a position that I think most people six years ago would not have imagined possible, given the level of disappointment after the Copenhagen conference, is not just down to very skilful management of the Paris um, conference itself, although undoubtedly the French did manage the conference very well. It is a reflection instead, I think, of the fact that across the world now, Nations are moving very quickly to harness the opportunities of a clean energy future. <coughs> Last year, investment in renewable energy was greater than the combined investment of coal, nuclear, gas and hydropower for the first time ever in our history. Last year, China invested considerably more in renewable energy than the combined investment from the United States and the European Union. And next year, China will start a national emissions trading scheme, very similar to the one, I might say, that was put in place under the last Labor government, covering power generation and big heavy emitting industries. 
Ernst and Young expect that China will increase its renewable energy targets for 2020 from 100 to 150 gigawatts of solar power and from 200 to 250 or even 280 gigawatts of wind power by 2020. And it's worth remembering when you think about those numbers that the entire Australian electricity system is only about 50 gigawatts. And it's not just China that is making this shift. India also has very, very ambitious investment targets, particularly in solar power out to 2022. In the United States, 200 of their 500 or so coal-fired power stations have either been closed in the last five years or have had a target date set for that closure. And in the United Kingdom, a Tory government only very recently announced that their last coal-fired power station in the home of coal-fired power their last coal-fired power station will close by 2023. These are all hard-headed decisions by national governments that have aimed at positioning their people for a large share of the enormous jobs and investment opportunities that flow from a clean energy future. But it's also a hard-headed recognition that, as the Governor of the Bank of England said in September leading into the Paris Conference, climate change will threaten financial resilience, and long-term prosperity. And while there is time to act, the window of opportunity is finite and it's shrinking. So to those who still argue in this country, some of our media outlets on the op-ed pages of some of our newspapers, or one in particular, uh, and for some in the national parliament, for those who still argue that climate action is not necessary or should not be pursued, these trends and the Paris Agreement itself, I think, um, send a very clear message, and that is, it's over. The time for debating whether we should take action is past. And the debate around the world, and in most corporate boardrooms to boot, has shifted instead to asking, what do we need to do, and how fast do we need to do it? None of this is meant to suggest that meaningful climate action, or meaningful action on climate change, is going to be easy. For Australia in particular, the transition to a clean energy future presents huge challenges, as well as very, very significant opportunities. The challenges largely flow from our highly emissions-intensive economy. OECD data confirm that Australia produces more greenhouse gases per head of population than any other OECD country. And the Chief Executive Officer of a big Australian company recently came to see me to complain about me regularly using that statistic and said that I should use some other indicator. So I referred him at the time to the emissions intensity of our economy instead, the number of tonnes of carbon pollution that are produced per unit or per dollar of GDP. And within the OECD, we're not at the top of the list, but we're second after Estonia. <laughs> not sure what's happening in Estonia, but it's not good. In fact, Australia produces three times the level of pollution per unit of GDP produced in Japan. We produce more than twice the level of pollution produced in the UK and Germany, almost twice that of the United States, and fully 25% more than produced in the developed economy that most, most resembles, most closely resembles Australia, which is Canada. In large part, this reflects an economy that has been built on coal-fired power, as well as the energy-intensive manufacturing operations that tend to be attracted to the cheap and abundant power that coal produces. Of course, Australia's emissions profile is also heavily impacted 
by other sectors of the economy, for example, the way in which we use land, our transport sector, our mining sector and the like. But tonight I want to focus particularly on energy. The truth is that the transition to clean energy around the world is already presenting a very deep challenge to our role in the global energy market, particularly as a major coal exporter. As the world shifts to renewable energy as well as to other low emission sources of power, such as nuclear and gas, coal demand is in very significant decline. Coal demand in the United States has been dropping since 2007. Last year, in the largest coal market in the world, China, thermal coal imports dropped by fully 30%. And in India, often held up as the great hope for the global coal market, thermal coal imports in 2015 dropped even more by a whopping 34%. Unsurprisingly, given that three quarters of coal consumption in the world happens in those three countries, these trends are wreaking havoc on the industry. The coal price has collapsed, the world's largest privately owned coal company, Peabody, is on the verge of Chapter 11 bankruptcy in the United States. The Queensland Resources Council reports that more than half of the thermal coal mines in that state, Queensland, are operating at a loss and unsurprisingly thousands and thousands of jobs have been lost. But in the domestic market in Australia, coal is still king. More than three quarters of Australia's electricity still comes from coal including some of the very highly emissions intensive brown coal-fired power stations in the Latrobe Valley in Victoria. Now, not only is Australia one of the most energy intensive economies in the world, we also have one of the most emissions intensive or highly polluting electricity sectors in the world. Our electricity sector in Australia produces more carbon pollution per megawatt hour than China's and about 87% more than the OECD average. Electricity generation in Australia is the single biggest source of carbon pollution, accounting for fully one third of our national total. And it simply must get cleaner. And herein lies the opportunity, because in electricity, unlike many other sectors of the economy, cleaner technology to produce power already exists. And it's constantly getting better and it's constantly getting cheaper. Australia is also blessed by the fact that we don't just have lots of coal and lots of gas and lots of uranium. We also have some of the best renewable energy resources on the face of the earth. Across most of the continent we have great solar radiation. Particularly across the south of the continent we have extraordinary wind resources. And especially in the southern ocean, again on the south, we have some of the world's best tidal and, um, and wave energy. And over many years, including particularly here in New South Wales, it pains me to say as in South Australia, we've consistently demonstrated that we have some of the best minds and some of the most innovative businesses that are hungry to drive this transition to a clean energy future. And under Labor, when we were in government, we have made a promising start down this pathway. During our six years in government, we legislated for a 20% renewable energy target we created the Clean Energy Finance Corporation and the Renewable Energy Agency, or ARENA, and in 2012 we put a price on carbon. And during that period, wind power in Australia tripled. We went from a position where when we were elected in 2007, only 7,400 households in the whole country had rooftop solar. And when we left government six years later, that number was 1.3 million, and it's continued to climb. 
and also with the support of the CEFC and ARENA, we were able to approve the largest wind farm in the Southern Hemisphere down in Victoria, the MacArthur Wind Farm, and the largest PV solar farm in the Southern Hemisphere here in New South Wales. Jobs in the renewable energy industry tripled during a period that included the global financial crisis, and it wasn't just jobs that people most commonly associate with that industry. In my own state of South Australia, in Adelaide, in Northern Adelaide, a venerable old Australian company, IXL, 150-year-old family company, decided to set up a factory to build something new, to diversify from their 150-year history of building electrical appliances and car parts. Using Australian steel, they built 100,000 steel frames to support the 2 million solar panels that go into that world's largest or Southern Hemisphere's largest PV solar farm in New South Wales, creating dozens of jobs in a very traditional manufacturing prison. In the first 12 months particularly of the carbon price, with those other policies also having an impact, carbon pollution levels in the national electricity market reduced by 7% in just 12 months. With renewable energy uh, uh, increasing its share of the market, the national electricity market, by fully 25% in that 12-month period, all at the expense of coal. And by 2013, Australia was rated in the Global Index run by Ernst & Young, the big renewable energy index for business. Australia was rated as one of the four most attractive countries on the face of the earth in which to invest in renewables, up with the big powerhouses of the United States, China and Germany. And in significant part, investment flowed to Australia from these big global companies because there was bipartisan support around the renewable energy target. It wasn't around the carbon price, I can assure you, but there was around the renewable energy target. It gave investors confidence that they could come and invest in long-term projects that would be durable beyond changes of government. Now, of course, that all came crashing down in one infamous radio interview that the then Prime Minister Tony Abbott did with one of your local radio identities, a fellow called Alan Jones. I've heard of him. Within a few short months in 2014, the Prime Minister then withdrew support from the government for the renewable energy target and appointed a very sceptical panel to review the target. The CEFC and ARENA were targeted for abolition in the 2014 budget and a barrage of confidence-crushing uh, commentary started to flow from senior members of the government, including the Treasurer, who described a wind farm you see when you drive from Sydney to Canberra as, uh, what was it, utterly offensive, as utterly offensive, again, on Alan Jones' radio show, as if he was sort of judging some sort of confronting sculpture at a community art show. And the Prime Minister's description of his experience riding a bike near a wind farm on Rottnest Island, which was told with the same sense of horror uh, with which Homer describes that passage Odysseus took between Scylla and Charybdis in the Odyssey. And it would all be funny if it wasn't so serious, but it was very serious and it had very real consequences in this industry. Hundreds of jobs were lost, uh, over 2,000 jobs in a very short period of time. Investment in renewables in Australia utterly collapsed by as much as 88% in 2014, a year when renewable energy investment around the world was soaring. Understandably, unsurprisingly, we lost our place in the top four renewable energy investment destinations, losing that place to India and collapsing to 13th place on the Ernst & Young Index. 
we had been the 11th largest investor in dollar terms in renewable energy. In one year, we dropped to 39th, uh, lower than Myanmar, lower than Honduras and a number of other countries. Apparently, the Burmese generals got clean energy, but Tony Abbott didn't. And as coal-fired power stepped into that breach, as renewables started to recede, carbon pollution levels in our electricity sector, after starting to come down for the first time in the nation's history, understandably started to rise again, by as much as 5% in just the 18 months after the carbon price mechanism was repealed in mid-2014. Now last year, I and others in federal labour took the view that we needed to find a way to restore a level of investor confidence back in the renewable energy industry, to prevent those companies that had flocked to Australia over the previous years <coughs> from simply packing their bags and leaving the shores of Australia for more friendly investment environments. And we were very strongly urged to take that approach by the renewable energy industry itself. But while the revised renewable energy target with bipartisan support in the parliament, as well as frankly a change of Prime Minister from Tony Abbott to Malcolm Turnbull has lifted confidence again in the renewable energy industry, actual delivery of new renewables projects remains far too slow. And confidence won't have been helped much by Malcolm Turnbull's decision last week to cut all of the grant funding in the Renewable Energy Agency for research and development and commercialisation of emerging renewable energy technologies. Now this crisis, and it is a crisis, in Australia's renewable energy industry is set against a background of an electricity sector that is confronting profound challenges across a range of different fronts. There is a pressing need to start the very difficult process of decarbonising our electricity sector. But the most basic rules of the national electricity market don't reflect that imperative at all. The national electricity objective, the law and the market rules are all based exclusively on the reliability of supply of electricity and affordability. They say nothing about the third pillar of modern electricity policy, which is carbon. So the implementation of policies directed at decarbonisation, like, for example, the renewable energy target, end up feeling like trying to bang a square peg into a round hole. And there's a myriad of other challenges in the electricity sector. Flat or even declining demand for electricity over the last several years has meant that there's an oversupply of electricity generation in the market. Now, generation fleet is starting to age. By 2020, about half of our generators in Australia will be more than 40 years old, which is well beyond the end of their design life. And by 2030, that figure will be as high as two-thirds. So even leaving aside the imperative of decarbonisation, the nation would in any event be having to have a discussion about how we retire and then renew our generation fleet. All of this, in our view, demands a comprehensive strategy to modernise Australia's electricity sector. We must explicitly recognise decarbonisation as a central policy imperative in electricity. And there must be real ambition again in this country to grow renewable energy. Labor is committed to delivering policy that will ensure that at least 50% of Australia's electricity by 2030 comes from renewable energy resources. And if elected this year, we will commission advice on the best policy mechanism to deliver on that commitment. Now that mechanism may well not be a simple extension 
of the current renewable energy target. Overseas experience over the last several years reveals a strong shift to different mechanisms, a shift that we're very keen to explore. By contrast, at this point in time at least, the Turnbull government has no plan at all for renewable energy beyond 2020. We have the revised RET until then and then no policy beyond that date. So when we asked Malcolm Turnbull in question time whether his government would join with Labor to make the 50% renewables target a bipartisan commitment, instead he described our policy as reckless and announced that his government would be focusing on other abatement opportunities, to use his words, such as clean coal. Now my consultations over the summer, including with the electricity industry, have also revealed a widespread view that a national policy is needed to deliver an orderly process of closing down the more heavily polluting older coal-fired power stations in this country. And we're considering those views <coughs> very closely at the moment as we finalise our election policy. We also heard very broadly from the business sector, from environmental groups and many other stakeholders, a demand for much more ambition around energy productivity and energy efficiency. And again, we're considering those demands very closely as well. And as I hope you would expect from the Labor Party, we're heavily focused on ensuring uh, strong supports for the regions, the communities and the workers that will be most directly impacted by this transition to a clean energy future. Over the summer, as I was undertaking these consultations, I spent time in the Collie Valley in Western Australia, a coal-fired power community essentially, in the Latrobe Valley in Victoria, as well as the Illawarra and the Hunter Valley here in New South Wales, talking to unions, to local councils and to businesses about those impacts, some of which are frankly already hitting them. Support for those communities, I want to stress, will be utterly at the centre of Labor's policy around modernising our electricity sector. Before I close, I want to say um, just a few words about the broader task of reducing Australia's emissions profile or our carbon pollution levels beyond just the electricity sector because while electricity is the largest piece in that jigsaw puzzle, it is at the end of the day only one piece. Now unlike most other developed countries, <coughs> actually almost all developed countries I can think of, uh, unlike those, Australia's emission levels at the moment are going precisely the wrong way, they're going up. During our term in office, emission levels or carbon pollution levels in Australia were reduced by 8%, largely on the back of our climate change and renewable energy policies, but also frankly because of tough land clearing restrictions that have been put in place by state Labor governments in previous years, particularly Queensland, but also here in New South Wales. Unsurprisingly, perhaps, the, the repeal of all of our policies and climate change and significant parts of our renewable energy framework, as well as Campbell Newman's decision in Queensland to trash the land clearing laws that have been put in place in there, have meant that emissions in Australia have started to rise for the first time in a decade. The Turnbull government's own data, which they held back during the Paris conference, uh, but released a couple of days before Christmas last year, project that emissions will rise by 6% between now and 2020 under the existing direct action policy framework that they have in place. So that by 2020, Australia's emission levels will be 6% above 2000 levels, not the 5% below 2000, which was the bipartisan commitment as part of the Kyoto Protocol. 
And all available modelling indicates very clearly that beyond 2020, under the direct action policy, emissions will just continue to rise. Now Australia, along with 195 other nations, has just signed an agreement to keep global warming well below 2 degrees of Celsius, a commitment that demands very deep reductions in our carbon pollution levels here in Australia. But we simply won't get those deep cuts, or frankly any cuts really at all, under direct action with no renewable energy policy beyond 2020 and a return to broad-scale land clearing in Queensland. We all have a very long election campaign ahead of us. It's going to be extraordinarily long, but so enjoyable for all of you. Labor intends climate change and renewable energy to be right at the centre of this campaign. Uh, now, it takes two to tango in these things, and I'm pretty confident that Malcolm Turnbull doesn't really want to turn up for this debate at this stage. But even if he doesn't show up, we intend to speak very loudly and very clearly, I hope, about our ambitions in this area. Because the next parliament simply must do better than the last three have done in this area. Simply must do better. And although this is primarily a challenge for the parliament and the members of parliament and senators, the broader community, including the business sector, have a critical role to play in raising their voice, I think, in a clear and resounding demand for Australia to get back on the path to a clean energy future. I hope all of you will shout that demand uh, on each and every one of the 100 or so days that we have left of this very long election campaign. And I really want to thank you for coming along tonight to the SEI for the invitation to be with you. Thank you very much. Thanks very much, Mark, for that um, illuminating discussion about where you've come from, where you're likely to go. Um, it's my great um, honour to be able to let me use this. Okay, my great honour to be able to respond to that. Um, so while you were talking, I took took some notes about things that I think that resonated strongly with me, and I hope with many other people in the in the room as well. And you, I've got, I've really actually got six six points here that I'd like to address on each one. Um, you mentioned that you know, the result of the Paris Agreement was really a global consensus on the need to decarbonise and to look at the future industries and consumption and use of energy so that we don't exceed uh, really one and a half degrees of global warming. And I think many of you will have already seen the reports and the um, the charts of the last uh, six months or so that have come from organisations like NASA, where we're seeing actually extremely rapid increase in global average temperatures over this last period of um, five or so years. So I, I believe, I think, that the challenge is actually going to be much harder than earlier politicians and earlier analysts would have thought. The change is happening faster and the challenge is getting harder. Um, so very, very keen to see your view that the next parliament's job is going to be harder than any previous parliament in this aspect. Um, also, you mentioned that clean energy is the new industry, um, which I highly agree with. It disappoints me a lot to see um, the issues that can be uh, addressed with new technologies being presented more as a, as a challenge and a cost rather than the opportunity. 
the issues uh, for Australia are that our traditional um, long-lived industries are no longer being able to provide the jobs and the income and the attractions for new employment that the future industries will. And the clean energy futures, I think, are really the ones that Australia needs to start uh, addressing. We need to train people to, for those industries and we need to manage this transition, I think, away from those industries. So um, hats off to governments that accept that this is actually an opportunity as well as a challenge. Um, and if we continue to um, argue and debate the need to maintain our existing industries at the expense of moving into the new industries, I think we'll all be uh, worse off for that. Uh, you also discussed the electricity sector facing profound changes and that's, this is a really big and challenging issue for the industry. Um, Australia's electricity generating industry, most of the plant is over 20 years old and much of it is coming to the end of its life. Now, investors are not going to be able to um, make a long-term decision on new plant as long as policy keeps changing every electoral cycle and in some cases between and within parliamentary cycles. So it's extremely important, I think, that our political parties um, agree on a way of developing stable policies that industry feel comfortable and not going to change um, almost with the roll of dice. Without being uh, critical of any, any parties in particular, I think we've seen far too much reliance on um, trying to support clean energy industries by almost using political, um, political motives in setting up organisations and funding uh, schemes which are almost used like political lollies. Um, you know, promising extra support for particular parts of the industry which within 18 months or two years ends up being withdrawn or, or redirected. Um, those sorts of approaches I don't think do the industry and uh, our, um, our challenge of being able to grow this industry um, any good at all. Um, great to see Labor committing to 50% electricity supply from renewable energy by 2030. Um, it's really only 13 years away or so, so this is a big challenge. Um, a large part of our research here in the Faculty of Engineering is actually on how do you manage this transition by going from a centralised, large-scale, remote power system to new systems where you have variable, distributed and diverse ranges of electricity generation. Um, and our analysis, I think, is showing that it's, it is doable, for sure, uh, but it is going to be done through a different mechanism to the way we operate now. And it was great to see you mention the electricity rules um, as being silent on emissions and relying really largely or requiring this very high level of reliability. Uh, I think the rules need to be changed and addressed and I'm pretty sure that most people here wouldn't have gone through and read the 1700 pages of rules. Um, I'm, I suspect people in your office may have to have done that, um, but it is a nightmare. Um, and the rule changing process is really one of the big challenges also that I think the clean energy and the renewable industry in particular will face. Uh, beyond electricity alone, as you mentioned, um, emissions are starting to rise again. Um, this, is a, this is, I think, probably not a surprise to many of the people who follow this and who live this day to day, that a large part of the reduction that we saw over the last few years has been 
because we've used elec less electricity. The uh, electricity demand in Australia peaked in about 2009 um, and every year up until the last figures that are available, electricity consumption and generation has decreased every year. And given that our electricity supply is largely coal-fired and gas or fossil fueled, then it doesn't make any, it's, it's no surprise that emissions have not grown as fast and in fact emissions from the electricity sector have decreased a little bit. However, I think this is the first year where we're not going to see such a drop in electricity demand again and inevitably with population growth, natural, uh, natural growth in industry, we'll start to see emissions starting to rise again. Um, and beyond the electricity industry and the other industries that Mark mentioned, um, this is starting to happen as well. So the challenge is, is going to become even harder. We have a, a, a more challenging target coming out of Paris. Um, we've lost some of the mechanisms to be able to influence and manage greenhouse gas emissions um, and our emissions themselves are starting to go up. So I think it's a really, really challenging task for future, future political parties to be able to turn that around and good luck to the next parliament to be able to do that. Um, and finally, your last point is that you know, the next parliament's going to have to do better. Uh, I think we've got 10 or 20 years ahead of us where I think every parliament is going to have an even bigger challenge. We can, we can uh, be quite uh, happy to see large percentage growths in installed renewables, for example, and you, you made the case for photovoltaics. But from the bigger picture, um, they are still a minor, a very minor part of Australia's electricity generation. It's quite easy to get um, big changes from a small base. The real challenge will come to get from 20% to 25 to 30 to 50%. These are huge changes that will require very, very tough decisions. Multi-billion dollar um, investments need to be made, encouraged um, and managed. So thank you, Mark, for, uh, put, I guess, presenting your party's view on what the problems are, what the challenges are, and um, hopefully you'll be able to take some questions from the audience that might be able to put you on the spot. Okay, thank you. So before we put Mark on the spot, Lisette, um, he's going to come up and... Uh, also provide a response. Well, good evening, everyone. My name is Lizette Collins, and I'm a PhD candidate here at the University of Sydney. And I wanted to use my time here tonight to broaden the discussion a little bit um, that we've been having here, because you see, my speciality is climate change adaptation. And so I want to talk a little bit uh, today about, about adaptation. Now, I mentioned I'm a PhD candidate, and I actually submitted my thesis about a month ago now. And the thing about being a PhD student is uh, when you're out and about, you meet people, and they say, well, what is it that you do? And you say, oh, I'm a PhD student. And they say, well, what is it that you research? And what they're really asking for is not a 45-minute breakdown of your 85,000 thesis um, that you have lovely crossed over the last four years. What they really want is a one-sentence answer. And so you have to get really good at delivering that one sentence answer. So when people ask what it is that I research, I say, well, look, I study climate change adaptation plans as they're developed by local governments across Australia. And the reaction to that is usually pretty positive. People sort of say, oh, that's very hot, isn't it? 
that's very relevant, climate change. Uh, and the other sort of reaction that I get is one of a little bit of confusion and a little bit of surprise. People sort of look at me and they go, climate change adaptation is that is that like a thing? Like is that even happening? I didn't even know the government was doing that. And that's a pretty pretty fair reaction because until I started my PhD research, I do think that climate change adaptation plans were being developed by local councils across Australia. But now that I've written thesis, I can share with you that there are currently at least 97 climate change adaptation plans across this country developed by over 180 local governments. And the reason for the discrepancy in those numbers because often local councils, particularly smaller ones, will combine their resources and create one adaptation plan for, for a region. So 180 plus councils are thinking about this and have an adaptation plan. That doesn't mean that the rest of the councils in Australia aren't thinking about climate change. After four years of talking to people across this country, I can guarantee you every single council in this country has thought about climate change. They just all haven't necessarily had the opportunity to develop, to develop an explicit, publicly accessible climate change adaptation plan. So why is it that I'm talking about adaptation here today? For the most part, tonight, what we've been focusing on is discussing climate change mitigation. And so what I will spend the rest of my time doing is talking about the difference between mitigation and adaptation and why I think it's so important that when we have discussions like we're having tonight about mitigation, that we don't forget to also think about climate change adaptation. So climate change mitigation is really about trying to stop, slow, halt climate change. That's why there's all this discussion about emissions and about carbon, it's a lot about numbers, and trying to find the sweet spot where we can still develop our economies, but not sort of trash the earth as we do it, right? Climate change adaptation kind of does what it says on the box, right? It's about learning to adapt to the predicted climate impact that we're all going to face as communities into the future. And when I explain the distinction to people between the two things, the reaction I sometimes get is, I don't know, adaptation sounds like kind of a cop-out, doesn't it? I mean, it kind of sounds like it's only in the towel, in one mitigation, like just giving up and going, we'll just jump straight to adapting, right? And that's a pretty, pretty fair assessment. And about two decades ago, it was a very important conversation that we had internationally, and particularly being had in the US. You see, academics called it a moral hazard. They said it was a moral hazard to think about climate change adaptation, because what that did was it took some of our brain power some of our research, some of our resources away from thinking about mediation and into thinking about adaptation. Why do that when we should be putting everything behind mediation? About trying to lessen the emissions, about trying to lessen our carbon footprint. But in 2016, we no longer had the luxury of being able to talk about climate change mediation without also having a discussion about climate change adaptation. And in fact, we haven't had the luxury of doing that for quite some time. In 2007, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, in their fourth assessment report, said that anthropogenic warming and sea level rise would continue for centuries due to the timescales associated with climate processes and feedbacks, even if greenhouse gas concentrations were to be stabilised. 
And I can't tell you how many conferences I've been to over the last four years where I sat there and someone stood here with a rack behind them and explained to me that even if every single person in the world stops using fossil fuels tomorrow, we would still need to adapt to the changes that we are already locked into for hundreds of years. Even if we are successful at mitigation, we will still have to work on adapting to the climate change that we're not into. I think it's really important that we discuss both mitigation and adaptation. And to wind up, I'm going to tell you the title of my thesis. I pick a word for it actually very carefully and very specifically. It's called Confronting the Inconvenient Truths. And I use the word confront because it has two meanings in the dictionary. The first meaning of confront is to come face to face with a hostile or argumentative intent. And when it comes to climate change, as a race, we are really good at coming at it with a hostile and argumentative intent. We have debated climate scientists, we have challenged climate scientists, climate science itself has been misrepresented, misunderstood, and denigrated over and over again, here in this country as well as globally. And that's one way that we can confront the challenge in front of us. But the second meaning of confront is to face up to and deal with the problem or difficulty. And I know that we're also capable of the second one, because otherwise I wouldn't have my set of climate change adaptation plans that I could write these 5,000 words back. If we're going to confront climate change successfully, we need to be talking about both mitigation and adaptation because it's too late, unfortunately, and as scary as that is, to think that mitigation will be enough. for that quite uh, sobering but um, manageable uh, discussion, I think. And often as engineers we do tend to focus so much on mitigation um, and much less on adaptation. So thank you for reinforcing that, uh, that need for us. Um, so now I'd like to invite Mark and Lisette to come and grab a seat and we'll take some questions or more questions from, from the audience. Okay, so what have we got? Uh, with the red shirt, I think. Yep, you had your hand up first. Can you also say where you're from? Yeah. Um, hi, Mark. Thank you so much for the presentation today. Um, my name is Jason Wu. I'm a senior research fellow here at the University of Sydney. Um, actually, I don't work in uh, climate change research, uh, but it's something very close to my heart. Um, I'm also a volunteer for 350.org, uh, which is a climate advocacy group. Um, I must say, I was very impressed by Labor's um, leadership on this issue in terms of supporting the renewable industry, committing to the Paris um, targets, and really you know, uh, standing up at the front of the line, not the back end, um, and, and, and you know, arguing that we need to change right now. One of the things that I felt like that we haven't sort of talked about tonight, and, and I wanted to hear your view on this, is Clearly, one of the main ways that Australia is contributing to climate change is through its export industry, and in particular coal. 
uh, or one of the largest exporters of coal on the planet. Um, and right now, um, every year, this is the Parliament Budgetary Office's own costing, Australia is getting about $7.7 billion worth of tax breaks and subsidies to the fossil fuel industry. Now, clearly, this creates a pretty uneven playing field for the renewable industry, the very industry that we're thinking of supporting and getting to grow in Australia. Um, and, and also, you know, this is just not what the scientists call them. We need to leave the fossil fuel in the ground, not to need to continue to dig it up and explore as fast as we can. Um, so my question for you is, um, will Labor show leadership and commit to ending such tax breaks and subsidies for the fossil fuel companies um, in the future? Thank you. Uh, good, easy one to start with. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that. And, and um, I've read that PBO analysis and a range of other reports that have um, been commissioned in recent years about fossil fuel subsidies. And, uh, while we were in government, the G20 broadly gave a commitment to phase out, I think the description was inefficient fossil fuel subsidies. And unfortunately, most of the energy since that time has been spent debating what is an efficient uh, fossil fuel subsidy and what is perhaps an inefficient uh, fossil fuel subsidy. We haven't, we haven't uh, reached a, a view about that for the election. Certainly, I've announced a view about that. Uh, but the major, the major piece of um, uh, the major subsidy that is the focus of the Parliamentary Budget Office work and most other reports that I've seen on this is the diesel fuel rebate, which is um, a very significant rebate that applies not just to the mining industry, it applies to agriculture, it applies to large commercial transport, so trucks, vehicle, four and five uh, tonnes. Um, but it, the, the big growth has been uh, in diesel for the mining industry over the last couple of years. It probably runs to about $2 a year now, um, while there hasn't been that level of growth in other industries. Uh, you know, a number of people over the course of the last 50 consultations that I did raised this question with me. We haven't reached a view about it. Um, I'm very aware of the, the sort of analysis that different organisations have done, but I can't tell you uh, tonight that we're going to take a particular position or another to the next election. Thanks, Jennifer. Yep. That's it. Um, I'll stay up. Um, g'day, guys. Um, another very environmentally green friendly address there. Right? Um, I just wanted to, my name is George Pappenickle. I'm just a member of the public, although I've got an interest in environmental affairs uh, and renewable energy. I just wanted to, in a way, follow up from the previous gentleman's question. Uh, in, uh, Mark touched upon it, just talk about the fact that uh, we've got aging power stations and they will have to be rebuilt if fossil fuels are going to continue to be our main form of uh, energy production. Um, now, as I was solar energy research conference just recently, um, where a representative of one of the major um, um, energy organisations of the country, Energy Distributors, uh, basically said that they were had a plan to close their um, um, fossil fuel power stations by 2048 or somewhere around there. And I know at least one other of those major organisations has announced that already. I assume a few others are already thinking about it. So my question to you is, um, if these energy uh, distributors are basically uh, raising the white flag and saying uh, renewable energy is going to be the way to go and they're putting them over their mouth there, so to speak. Where is the pressure coming from politically to maintain the status quo of the current fossil fuel um, 
environment. Uh, it's going to be coming from maybe the mining industries, I would suggest, but uh, I just wonder if you could actually enlighten us or where you think the political pressures are coming. Well, I don't, I don't think the mining industry is fine. I don't think the mining industry has a particular view about it because most of the coal fired power stations have associated coal mines, certainly around coal fired power stations too. Look, I think it's a, it's a range of complex um, elements really. I mean, you're right, most of, the, most of the big companies have announced that they'll be shutting their coal fired generation sometime between now and 2050. For the most part, I mean, they're welcome announcements, but for the most part, these are announcements about the closure at the end of life anyway. There's not much uh, announcement um, of accelerated or early closure. Uh, and I think the view of the industry, uh, frankly, would be that there's no policy framework in place for, um, for closure to make sure that it is done in an orderly way in a sequence that ensures, first of all, that there is still reliable supply of electricity to consumers, households and businesses that there is good structural adjustment supports in place for the regions affected. Um, and now, when we were in government, we had a policy called contracts for closure that involved the possibility of government paying probably one of the big ground coal-fired generators in the Troy Valley to close. Um, that didn't go anywhere, essentially, because negotiations broke down between our government and the generators. I suspect some of the generators now regret that because you know, we've said and the Liberal Party said there will not be taxpayer funds given to companies to close their generators. Um, there are, within the industry and within academia, I think a range of other possible policy frameworks being considered to, to accelerate the closure, certainly well earlier than um, some of those companies have talked about. The ANU published a paper late last year. Uh, Frank Jotso in particular published a paper about a reverse option type mechanism that would see um, some of these closures start to happen a little bit sooner. One of the things that I think is stopping particularly the big companies from closing is, um, you know, people have seen those white dogs, that sort of final scene where everyone's got a gun aimed at each other and no one knows who's going to shoot first. There is a bit of a first mover disadvantage involved in closing uh, your generator because there will be somewhat of a recovery in the wholesale price for those that stay in the market. So, you know, everyone sort of agree there's too much generation in the system, probably particularly too much coal generation, but no one's, if you just leave it up to the market, it's not going to sort of happen in an orderly way, which I think is why uh, people in the industry now are urging governments to think about, other than by way of government payment, uh, some sort of policy framework that would see an orderly approach to retiring some of the older, more heavily polluting um, coal-fired generators, particularly, frankly, some of them in the Trade Valley, but also AGL has announced that the Dell here in New South Wales will be likely to close by 2022, I think, or 2023. Um, so we're considering that work pretty closely, uh, and I think what's really interesting is the shift in the industry to start to talk as an industry about that sort of a policy framework. My name is Karamazo Sako. I'm working on climate change, well, I did before at the United Nations University in Africa. Um, I guess my question is uh, to, sorry, I couldn't get the name. That's it. That's yeah, I just wanted to get a bit more insight into your PhD topic. Um, I guess none of you qualified when you talk to me. Yeah, just 
wanted to know some of the propositions that you put forward um, when you're talking about climate change adaptation. How can we adapt to climate change? Sure. So um, the purpose of this thesis was to collect as many of the climate change adaptation plans that were publicly accessible, um, compilable in a database, and then look at why there, there was such variation in what councils were identifying as um, A, a climate risk, um, B, how they were prioritising those risks, um, and C, how they established their scope. Um, so one of the really interesting things to come out of it is that if you want to categorise the plans, if you like, into plans that are just focused on the biophysical impacts of climate change, that is sea level rise, um, heat waves, flooding, um, and plans that go beyond that into looking at the socio-political impacts of climate change. So planning for how to help vulnerable groups, such as the homeless, such as the elderly, um, such as the disabled, um, Concerns for the mental health of our communities across the country, especially when we're faced with continuing extreme weather events. Um, we have lots of life, livelihoods, and property. Every time there's serious floods, every time there's serious bushfires, these are taking serious tolls on the stress and anxiety levels um, of many of the population and their family members, and in, even in the darker areas, um, causing high levels of suicide rates for Australian farmers. So looking at um, that broad range of what could be included in a climate change adaptation plan, um, it, it, it isn't dependent necessarily on having huge resources as a council and therefore broadening your scope. You can have one-person teams with very broad views on life, bringing a very broad perspective to what climate change means um, and influencing that plan so it can be as broad as that. I'll quickly add to that. I think um, we had a really interesting discussion, well, I found it interesting, uh, earlier with the researchers about, about how we describe some of these policy areas. Um, because often, uh, often a policy challenge, like refugees, for example, from Syria, are not easily classified as people fleeing war or persecution um, at one level, um, or fleeing the consequences of a drought that was heavily impacted by climate change, which was, you know, as people analyze a root cause of the trouble in Syria. Equally, I think here we often engage in policy that is essentially about climate change adaptation, but don't necessarily call it that. Uh, you know, in our tenure government, the achievement of the Murray-Darling Basin Plan was one of the very big environmental achievements in our six years. We have been struggling with that for more than 100 years. And essentially, that is a piece of climate change adaptation. And I think the momentum that was that we were able to sort of see behind that plan and clearing some of the barriers that have been there for more than a century uh, were a product of people having, having experienced the, the um, millennium drought uh, and the, the, the impact that climate change had on that drought. So I think also sort of being clear about why we're doing some things uh, and the connection to climate change is probably something policymakers should pay a bit more attention to. Yep, yes. <laughs> Let's use the word, people. Climate change. <laughs> My name is Robert Vincent, Chairman of the Mission Trade Association. I help write the Kyoto Protocol. I'm a foreign expert guest with the government. I help write their Emission Trading Protocol to lower 6 billion tonnes of CO2 per annum per annum, turning over $300 billion per annum. As 
Australia has the opportunity to not only lower the emissions of major industries around the world, but at the same time repair our devastated environment, recycle rainfall back into the inland and repair the Murray-Darling Basin effect. So I subscribe that later has the unique, unique prospect of lowering CO2 to the rest of the world, funded by UNFCC 100-year protocol. So it's not going to cost Australian people money, but it'll be funded by global emitters. And we can reverse the national debt and also be seen as environmentally in front of the rest of the world. That sounds, sounds too good to be true. Mark? Yes, we've got the record, so we'll get to check it out. Okay. Well, I just want to make a good remark about that. Um, the, the, uh, I, think, well, I think what you're referring to is the international market that is um, is going to replace the current clean development mechanism in the new report after Paris, but will allow developed countries to trade into uh, global markets with uh, essentially land sequestration type credits. Uh, and um, you know there is an extraordinary opportunity that Australia has. Yeah, an extraordinary opportunity Australia has given our landmass to uh, over time to deal with our. Uh, our net emissions, uh, particularly given that we've committed to the net zero emissions by the middle of the century. But as you say, depending on how this market develops, and we're, I'm still a little bit unclear, frankly, about what the market's going to look like post 2020, uh, there will be opportunities if, if we're able to produce sufficient offsets to saturate the Australian need, then to export those offsets to, particularly to um, countries that don't have the access to land that we have that allow them to start to suck carbon out of the atmosphere. Uh, look, I think that's, that's a really exciting uh, opportunity for us in the future. It's going to, it's going to take a fair bit of attention to making sure that the market post-2020 is designed clearly uh, and you can remind something about it. My name is Vivian Langford from Beyond Zero Emissions. And just before I uh, um, ask you a question, I'd like to tell the audience that Mr Butler will be speaking on Monday again for Beyond Zero Emissions at Pitt Street Uniting Church. So you're all invited, 6 p.m. Please come to Pitt Street. But um, I'm interested in the idea of adaptation. I think people are thirsting for some ambition, some big projects in the adaptation sort of space that make us feel proud of being Australians because at the moment I meet mean, people, I interview people for the radio all the time, we're very ashamed of our you know, fall from grace in uh, decarbonisation and um, export of coal and gas and all of that. I really feel I need someone to speak inspirationally. So could you tell me, both of you, what do you see? You know, if you have any budget you could, if you're in power or if you're, you know, influential, what can you envisage? I think there's definitely an inspirational story. And there has to be because I couldn't have worked four years in this space reading some of the things I read every day and have finished the thesis if there wasn't. Um, I think adaptation is the space where we get to be proud of being Australians because the thing about Australia is we've had extreme weather. 
for a long time. It's not necessarily a new thing for us. What's going to be new for us is how often it occurs and how much more severe it's going to be than what we're used to. But because we've had the preparation of, of knowing what drought is like, knowing what bushfires are like, um, we are very good. We have excellent um, volunteer services that step in when they need to. We have fantastic firefighters that um, go around the world basically um, showing other countries how it is you can best prepare for the onset of what they call wildfires in the US. Um, we have probably the leading expertise in this country on the connection between mental health and climate change impacts. Um, like really fantastic work. Uh, stuff that looks at young children um, growing up into adolescence when they've experienced an extreme weather event and the effects on them, um, heat of studies on Australian farmers and the resiliency of Australian farmers. Um, studies across the, the entire country really um, that show that while the national conversation around climate change can be a bit depressing and a little bit like shameful, I will admit, sometimes it's shameful to be overseas and admit that I'm Australian, especially last year after certain things have been said about wind farms, as Mark mentioned. Um, <laughs> as Mark mentioned. Um, but to be able to tell the stories that we are planning for adaptation, that there are that many of them across the country, um, that's huge. And it's not something that a lot of countries have. We're thinking about it, we're just thinking about it under the radar. Um, and I encourage you all to go home and Google your council and find out if they have an adaptation plan. I'd wager because of where we are now, you probably do. Uh, look, um, very quickly, I could just add a couple of, a couple of things. I think uh, at, a, at a global level, at an international level, I think what would be inspirational for Australia is to ex exhibit a willingness to play, um, uh, play a role in, uh, in dealing with the impact of climate change, the locked-in elements of climate change in our own region, particularly with the small island states, Bill and Tanya, on a trip to Kiribati and Tuvalu and Fiji and PNG late last year before before the climate conference in Paris. This was a very important experience for them, I think, to spend some time away from the sort of the juggling balls uh, of leadership to think deeply about climate, but also particularly to talk to the leaders of those island states and what those leaders would like and, and in part expect from a very big economy in their own region. I think that really is a piece of work we've got to get much more serious about as a nation. The other inspirational thing I think I would like to see Australia lead on is, is uh, how, how you are able, Tony mentioned this a bit, how you are able to build an energy system around renewable energy. Um, now there are other countries that, that are doing that, but a lot of them have more micro power than we have, uh, and a lot of them have more interconnectors to other sources of energy. I think particularly about some of the European economies that are able to draw on very significant interconnections so that France's nuclear power or whatever. South Australia um, is becoming a bit of a case study around the world. We're 41% renewables now. We don't have any hydropower, largely because you guys take all the water out of our river and put gas there. Um, 
uh, money heart joking. Uh, but we don't have any hardware power, and interconnection is is really essentially South Australia and Victoria. So how we manage a grid based on a 41% decline of of intermittent renewable energy is a really exciting challenge to have. But one, frankly, the rest of the world is looking at because we're doing some things around grid engineering here in South Australia that no one else is really doing in the same circumstances. So. Again, we, we have the opportunity not only to be leaders in you know, just dollar investment and jobs created, but, but leaders in really pushing the envelope and showing new ways to do things and being able to export energy service, services in, in areas like grid engineering, which people often don't think about when they're thinking about climate change and renewable energy. These are some of the inspiring things. I think if we got back onto this pathway, I think we could do. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, my name is Gareth Johnson from We Win Business. We were part of the coalition in Paris uh, that you referred to. Um, for me, it's partly back to the future. I was sitting in 2001 uh, with Michael Meacher trying to convince the uh, car government to run a transition for the coal sector. Um, I had the current chair of the Liberal Party launch my wind energy company in 2003. I've been through various cycles, seeing business and capital, business willingness and capital rooted. Those are games that seem to be played at um, our political level here in Australia. What really bring it up to current uh, topics, which is the tax reform issue presented by Turnbull today, and the work that we've done by weather government in particular around blue carbon transition plan. I think it's the only state government in Australia to have a low carbon transition unit. There's clearly an opportunity for subsidiarity, climate change impacts on local, and often left local governments to deal with that. But the opportunity for a regional tax differentiation, which accelerates the transition, is clearly there. And whether it's in Navarra for wind farms, or whether it's in China with tax on coal, there's plenty of opportunities in policy settings. Can we see some pragmatic um, agreement, cross-party agreement in the Australian federal system uh, that leads to um, innovation and breakthroughs? For example, South Australia with these defence contracts, lithium-ion batteries used in submarines can very easily be adapted for use in grid security, grid power, uh, and clustering approaches. So I'm really just suggesting that we shouldn't have this operative discussion, but we need innovation in our political and tax climate to unlock substantial business commitments. Look, look I, I bring the perspective of a national parliamentarian, I guess, to this, but, but, um, but also the history of Australia since the war has been around having uniform national taxation arrangements, really. Although that's something to be unpicked today, it would appear. Uh, in a way that I, I think has surprised most people, the idea that we've moved back to state income tax uh, from a position that really was resolved in the 1940s, I think is weird, frankly. Um, so, Jay did, uh, uh, Premier Webber did, when he was developing that plan and taking advice from a range of experts about, about this, I think, think through the possibility of having some state based um, market arrangements or state based tax arrangements. <laughs> Uh, and you saw them a lot in Canada, particularly when the Harbour government was in place and, 
and really sort of quashing any national climate action because Canada has a mixed state or provincial and federal taxation arrangements. They were able to put in place carbon taxes and in some place cap and trade schemes at a provincial level, but I guess continued the process of, of climate action while the government in Ottawa was doing nothing. Uh, now we just we, we just don't have that history here, and I think, uh, in my view as a South Australian, uh, probably would have been at the time that this stuff is best done at the national level, and if you have different taxation arrangements, you do run the risk of, of a race to the bottom, not a race to the top, but a race to the bottom that would see carbon leakage from South Australia to a state or jurisdiction that advertised to business that it was going to be a, you know, a tax-free or a burden-free jurisdiction in which to do business from a climate perspective. So my view still is that we should do this nationally. Um, I think that's the most effective and efficient way to do it. But I think what you will see uh, is uh, what happened in the first decade of the century when Howard wasn't really shifting fast enough on renewables or on, on the idea of emissions trading scheme. State, progressive state governments really start to push the envelope to the point where the national government has to get involved. Um, so it's sort of that, that balance between advocacy and pushing that envelope before actually having to put in place differential tax regimes between states that I don't think would be an efficient, effective way to operate a federation. One second last question, then we'll do one more after this. Howard Witt, a retired engineer and a volunteer for Citizens Climate Lobby. Um, the bottom line is that there's export dollars in Southern China. There's no conceivable export dollars in certain renewables. So the implicit, if not explicit, idea of conservatives is it's in our interest to drag the chain because we get that export dollars acting a bit longer. Of course, the counter argument is that the impact on Australia from not taking action will be horrendous, and as indicated by the Senate's work. But this connection is not getting through the general vote. Obviously, in this audience, we're a fairly selected group, but I don't see this getting through to the average voter, the general voter. My question uh, to you, to both of you, is how can we make this more apparent to the public? I and mean, there are great examples like the Great Barrier Week. And would you value more comment to this effect from industry and from academics, emphasizing this link between a failure to act responsibly and quickly and the impact on Australia's future tourist industry, mining industry, uh, <laughs> farming industry, three increased swarms of more infrastructure costs and all those concerns. Um, I'll go first. Um, Look, this is a question that we've obviously been reflecting on pretty deeply over the last two and a half years. I was a member of the last government. I was a member of uh, Julia and Kevin's cabinet. Uh, I was a minister for climate change for a very short period of time. But I think all of us, uh, all members of the government, have reflected pretty deeply on how we ended up where we ended up after putting so much energy over six years into trying to get first the CPRS in place, then the Clean Energy Act, only to see it all go up in the public smoke, really, in the 2013 election and in 2014. It was pretty confronting to us, um, not just as a matter of substance, but in terms of us reflecting on what we're from. Uh, what we obviously 
made mistakes. I think a lot of people involved in that process, other political parties, business groups, made mistakes, hopefully, that they're reflecting on, even if they're talking, not talking about that publicly. But we certainly um, have tried to be open about the mistakes we think we made, um, some of them about the policy detail, uh, but, but also about the politics, uh, about how we sort of got into that carbon tax fight, about the way in which we messaged, if you like, or solved the case for climate action. Um, and you know, what I've tried to do in my role as having show responsibility for this over the last two and a half years is get around forums like this and hear from people about and people who care deeply about this, about what they think we did wrong, about you know, how did we prosecute this message wrongly, how frankly did we lose the politics to Tony Abbott, not just Tony Abbott, I mean, that quite a bit of help, but how did we lose the politics about how do we not carry the community in thinking that this wasn't an important enough issue to allow the Clean Energy Act to survive, even if there was a debate around you know, some of the detail at the edge. Uh, and you know, we've, I've thought pretty closely about this. I've had a look at overseas experience about how they manage it, particularly in other jurisdictions where this is hotly contested. And looking to the UK is not much help, frankly, because all of the politics has been taken out of this. Uh, you know, Cameron and Elephant agreed on all climate policy by and large in the last general election. But if you look to the United States, for example, Obama, who I think is one of the best communicators we have in modern politics, um, almost never talks about climate change without talking about health impacts, without talking about what it means for the population now, what it will mean for our children in terms of air quality and such like into the future. Uh, and you know, I think we do need to be much less uh, mechanistic about how we talk about this policy. Uh, when I say we are essentially me uh, and my colleagues, much less talking about uh, emissions trading schemes and market mechanisms, although in some audiences people want to get into that policy detail. But in the general community, talking about impacts, talking about what it means for health, what it means for agriculture, what it means for our neighbours and our way of life. And particularly to have, a, frankly, a, an honest debate about inter intergenerational equity, uh, about the fact that, that um, you know, we have a job to do as a country to keep to a particular carbon budget. Now that carbon budget is based on advice around the particular thresholds that we've agreed to. Um, different organisations like 350.org have different views about what the budget should be, but what we do agree upon is there is a budget. Uh, and, and the more we take of the budget, the less we leave for our children. The harder the job of transition is for our children, the steeper the reduction they have to put in places. And I think, um, you know, I think it's, it's not easy to craft that message because this is as Lord Stern said, sort of the, the, the most diabolically complex policy challenge really in history. Uh, and uh, we can't pretend there's an easy glib one-liner or a three-word slogan uh, that is going to be able to sell climate change action. It's, it's really complex, but uh, I don't have the answer yet. Um, I, I think being much more practical, focused on those impacts, but also focused on practical solutions rather than sort of abstract market mechanisms is a really important lesson that we learned from our you know, number of attempts to try and to get some deep roots in this policy that would endure. I think that's absolutely correct. I would just add to it that those two words, climate change, specifically in that order, are politicised to such a level in this country 
um, that it's still unbelievable, even now in 2016. A lot of the local councils that I talked to who had developed climate change adaptation plans explained to me that the only way they could get these through council or even talk about them with their communities was to never use the words climate change when they were discussing it. Um, to the point where I had someone tell me that the way they got around it was they talked about a changing climate and somehow that got them to the point where they could have an honest discussion about climate change because those two words in that order spark way too many problems and way too much background politics to people, so it's changing, it is changing the conversation, it's talking about health, it's talking about um, our children and our children's children um, as part of intergenerational equality because we need a different way to get in, that we, we really tarnish those two words. Okay, we're getting very close to the losing the satellite, so we'll have to take this as the last question, I'm sorry. Uh, Uh, my question is rather short. Uh, I wonder if Labour or any other party has a sense of emissions from agriculture. I have, in fact, the uh, impression that uh, we often talk about emissions from energy, but uh, agriculture uh, accounts for more than 23% of our uh, equipment emissions. So. <coughs> So the agricultural sector is, is accounted for in two separate sections in Australia. Uh, land use and land use change and forestry, the LCF, uh, and on the other hand, direct agricultural emissions, which frankly essentially come from the gaps of livestock, particularly cows. Uh, now in, 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 the, in the blue LCF sector, we've seen enormous reductions in our emissions uh, over the last um, 25 years, particularly as a result especially as a result of land clearing laws put in place by BB and Out of Life Queensland, but also laws put in place here in New South Wales. And we got those emissions down from about 135 million tonnes in 1990, which was about a quarter of our national footprint, down to about 13 or 14 tonnes. So a 90% reduction uh, by the time, towards the, the back end of our period of government. Now those are starting to rise again. So we've got a, a big problem as those land clearing restrictions have been repealed, particularly in Queensland, and are still in play again in New South Wales and other way in the NT. Uh, we run the risk of those land sector emissions starting to climb again, and I think we really need to think of a way nationally to get that back under control. Uh, if only because, um, if only because they're actually impacting out the international commitments we made under the Kyoto Protocol. So that's a very big part. That really was the vast, the sort of more than two-thirds of, I guess, the agricultural sector's output in carbon was through land clearing. I think we found a way through that. We're just at risk of losing it, so we just get that back. The more direct emissions from agriculture, uh, particularly in livestock, are frankly more challenging because um, some of those physical processes that we're engaging are very hard to control. Uh, they run to about, I'm not told about, it's really funny. Uh, uh, they run to about sort of 55 million tonnes uh, livestock, which is about the same as the Latrobe Valley puts out. So it's very substantial, it's about 10% of our total output. And there's interesting research going on at the moment about how you can deal with the, whatever happens in a cow's gut, uh, uh, which people tell me, you know, may well yield some dividends in the future, but at the moment, um, we do have a challenge. 
this is a sector that, that sort of goes up and down in terms of um, the numbers of cows because of uh, rainfall and such like. But it is a sector that's likely to grow because of exports, particularly to, to countries like China and others that are under protein. So I'd like to see a, a really easy way through that question in, in the livestock sector, um, in, in, in land use, land use change. Uh, I think as a national government, uh, we need to start to come to grips with the fact that state governments are changing the rules. But in, in terms of direct emissions from, from livestock, I think there, there is a challenge that is not going to be easy to deal with. Hey, Putting agriculture into an emissions trading scheme type arrangement is just not practical. There's 115,000 farms, um, and you know, those sorts of measurement, reporting, and verification processes for that number is just impractical. So uh, I don't pretend to have an answer to that. If you've developed one at the Quarry Uni, please let us know. But it is, it is something that we're talking pretty closely to the farms um, and other stakeholders in the land sector about. Okay, thank, thanks Mark. I think we'll have to wrap it up here. We could keep going for quite a few hours, um, but I know other people, Mark also have to get away. Um, it's very refreshing and thank you for coming along to talk to the SEI young researchers as well. Um, and it's great to hear people like yourselves coming along with facts, with seasoned arguments and a depth of experience and knowledge that uh, all too rarely do we see publicly um, in general. So thank you for taking the effort to do that. Please join with me in thanking Mark. And also a very big thanks to Seth, who's just gone through probably one of her most traumatic experiences <laughs> in her life. Congratulations on getting your thesis submitted. Has it been reviewed? Not yet. Not yet, okay. So a few a few more months maybe of nervous waiting, but I'm sure you'll come through with the flying colours. So thank you Seth, for your insight. <laughs>